Sometimes I say this a lot, but I want to just express on the part of our church family how much we appreciate those who lead us in music and who continue to help us as we transition with uh, life without Tim here. And uh, we appreciate uh, each person that offers their gifts in that area. Do I get an amen on that? Amen. Okay. All right. Some of you, some of you are there and appreciate it. Um, I'd like to pray, and then I'd like us to find our way into Nehemiah again, chapter 7, page 586 in your pew Bible, if you have a pew Bible in front of you there, or you have your own Bible. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> our gracious Father, uh, how we still are marveling and ever will marvel for all eternity at the extent and the depth of your grace and your love shown to us in Christ. We continue to pray, Father, that we might understand your love at work in our hearts in motivating us to give the gospel and good news to those around us, but also, Lord, in helping to know what it means as we, out of our love for Christ, what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple of his, what it means to live a life that is in keeping with our calling. We pray, Father, that you might help us to understand some of these insights more clearly as we think through your truth, your word, your work in, in history. And most of all, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to reflect on Christ and what he's done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I always find it exciting to finish and complete a project that I've begun. Isn't that a great feeling? Uh, you know, I'm not one to paint much around our house, but whenever we have done painting projects, it's just the most exciting thing to finally peel off all that masking tape and to pick up all of the drop claws everywhere and the mess. And then you just look at what you've done. And you're like, wow, we finally finished. I've been doing, wanting to do this for the longest time. It's finally done. Maybe it's finishing a research paper that you've been working on for weeks and weeks and you finally turn that thing in. It's just a sense of, wow, it's just great to finally be done with that. And uh, maybe it's a production or something you've been rehearsing for and you finally perform it. Uh, these are the things that bring a great sense of satisfaction. Well, I think we've reached that place in this book of Nehemiah, chapter 7, because in our study here, as we've come to almost the center of the book, <clears throat> this project that had been uh, spoken of on the earliest part of the fact that there was a broken down walls and a city that was in disrepair and vulnerable to the attacks of various enemy nations around it, here's the city of Jerusalem finally with a finished Walls that have been rebuilt and there are gates now finally in place. But what I find interesting as I read in this text, and by the way, I'm talking about the fact that in chapter 6, we read about the fact that uh, um, the wall was completed, verse 15 of chapter 6, the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul. It came about when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations surrounding us saw they lost their confidence. They realized that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Uh, there's the acknowledgement that they finally have finished this great um, task. And now chapter 7, verse 1, it came about when the wall was rebuilt that he talks about, and I set up doors, and then he talks about other things there. I find it interesting that the one thing he does not talk about here in this text, and that is there's no celebration. There's no acknowledgement of, of among the people of actually gathering there and taking time to celebrate, having some sort of uh, acknowledgement of this accomplishment that has now been brought forward. The silence is deafening. I find it amazing. But it's not too surprising in the sense that 
instead of having a celebration for a stone structure, acknowledging that it's complete, I think what's interesting is that the biblical emphasis here going forward in the book is that it records the rebuilding now of the people who live within this wall that surrounds the city of Jerusalem. And indeed, you'll notice that in chapter 1, there is not only a, an appointment of leaders that are responsible for various areas of their corporate life, we'll see in just a moment. There's also a census or accounting of the people within that city, so we know who all's there. And then a record of the fact that there were many who began to give to the work of the temple. In chapter 7, we find that it's clear that the completion of the wall is indeed done. But now we're going to move to the second half of the book, which is really sort of like a bridge. Chapter 7 is like a bridge to now talk about not only rebuilding walls that we've seen in the first six chapters, but now the renewal and the revitalization of the people who live within those walls. Again, the wall is not the main ultimate goal or objective that was in mind here that the God had for his people. It's the, really the spiritual life. It's the experience of the people who inhabited the city is really the focus of the remainder of the book. And I would just like to suggest to you that God is not just concerned about buildings. When we hear about the church of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about God has a great passionate concern about bricks and mortars. We are blessed to have a wonderful facility that's paid for for us to meet in and that's heated, thank the Lord. There's one on Middle Country Road that's not heated, and I'm thankful we don't, we're not meeting there today. But there are, we're blessed to have that, but that's not really God's focus. God's focus is building the living stones of people into a living structure that is the church of Jesus Christ. And God's, God's concern here in this book, I think, are some principles that we can gain for ourselves it's not enough that we just dwell securely within the walls of this facility once a week, but God is committed to renewing his people and emphasizing the fact that his people are a people who are set apart unto himself and therefore that they are different from and unique, uniquely set apart from the surrounding nations of people who do not honor God and who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so I'd like to look in this text this morning. It's a long chapter. But we're not going to become too much focused on all the specific details of it. I'll assure you that we'll skim over some parts of it. But um, it is quite lengthy. But I'd like to read verses uh, 1 to 4. And we'll start off of the first three characteristics about the people of God we find in this text. Verse 1 of chapter 7. It came about when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors... And the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to him, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post, and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. We start off in this section noticing that there are specific areas of responsibility that Nehemiah is now devoted to, and that is with these gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites. And then he mentions this guy named Hananiah, his brother, a leader of Jerusalem, 
and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress. And what he's doing here is Nehemiah is very wisely setting up and appointing, in a sense, two chief operating officers. He's appointing one in the capacity of what we would call the mayor of Jerusalem. Another one is appointed to be, in a sense, the chief of police, for better words, for, for better term. These selections, of course, are a crucial component for the people of God at that time because they're anticipating future growth. They're anticipating the fact that they've now got to organize themselves and they're going to restore a life among themselves for future uh, as a people in relationships in that context. And in order to sustain that kind of environment for God's people to function properly, they had to have these appointing of people with authority over the citizens of Jerusalem. Now, before I go any further, I want to make something very, very clear here. It would be an improper interpretation of this text if I were to suggest to all of us this morning and assume that the, really what God is revealing here is his intention that we now today derive the principle that we should have the church and civil government as one and the same thing. And that's not what I'm suggesting and that's not what this text is teaching us today. We've seen down through history this various problems within a corrupt church over the years that has sought to have a person leading the church holding the scepter, that is having authoritative rule to govern and having the laws of the land to enforce them by force, and also to hold in the other hand a shepherd's crook. To somehow do both of those roles for the church is not what God's intention is in today's world, that is, with the church of Jesus Christ. We're, we're dealing with a different period of redemptive history here. What we're dealing with here is during Israel's theocratic rule, during the period of time in which we're reading about here with Nehemiah, it was clear that these two were combined together, that they had governing authorities under God's uh, directions, and they also had people who were uh, religious leaders of their time as well. But what we're talking about in today's world is the fact, and it makes it very clear in the New Testament, that God has ordained authoritative figures and authorities over us, and the New Testament apostles would make it very clear that Christ's followers are to submit and live in submission to those governing authorities that God has put in place. Now, those are not joined together. The church uh, is not joined together with the civil authorities. They are two separate forms of authority, but we are to be in subjection to both. What do we mean by that? Well, to those who are, we are to call to be in subjection to those who have uh, legal authority over us is found oftentimes in the New Testament. For example, Romans chapter 13. In Romans 13, we clearly read of Paul writing at a time of Rome with Roman Empire and all of its corrupted authority uh, oftentimes misused, clearly, and something not popular, I'm sure, among many of the believers of the day. We read this. Paul says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Wow. That statement would have caused just ripples throughout the church there in Rome to hear what he's saying. But he's affirming the fact that there he says, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Even authorities that are difficult to live under are established by God. And he goes on to say, obey your leaders in that sense. Your, your governing authorities were to indeed be in subjection to them. There are limits to that subjection, 
and, and submission. We understand that. As you read in Acts, there are certain things which if the government tells us we must stop doing, which Scripture tells us we must do, then obviously we must serve God and yield to His authority ultimately. But the other point here is to say that there's a different also in, uh, in exhortation within the New Testament that we are to submit to the authorities that God has placed over the church and those who are the under-shepherds, as it were, the spiritual authorities, that is, elders. And we read that in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now you say, well, how do we know that he's not talking about police officers? How do we know he's not talking about uh, those who are enforcing laws of our land? Well, he goes on to say in Hebrews 13, 17, For they keep watch over what? Your souls. He's talking about spiritual authorities within the local church as they will have to give an account for their authority. So what the, number first, the first point here of our outline today is that God's people at that time and God's people today in this point of redemptive history, we are to be a submitting community, a submitting community. Now, that's not a very popular thought among many in our world. I'm a product of the 60s generation. I was born in 57, so you, I grew up in the 60s, and people were throwing off any and all forms of authority. But we can tell here that God is concerned about delegated authority is appropriate. It is that which God desires. It's part of God's structure, part of God's design. And when we talk about delegating authority among the people of God, let me be very clear here that we are not talking about the, uh, the idea of entrusting favored people like a select uh, insider club or group of people with some kind of power to exert their own will, their own preferences. But we're talking about people who are over the church, involved in the church, those who are called to be people who exhibit by their character and by their integrity a level of spiritual maturity that therefore there we can say, as I submit myself to God, I submit myself to these individuals who are placed over me by God, and, uh, and therefore that's the way I am to submit to God. Now some have looked at this text in Nehemiah and they said, well, I got some problems here because Nehemiah appears to be giving favoritism to his brother, commonly called nepotism. You see it oftentimes even in local government, don't we, today, where you hear about uh, Joe Schmo is, is the person in charge of some uh, area of government here, and he's got his sister-in-law working over here in the government office, and he's got his uh, stepbrother over here, and he's got all these people. It's interesting the number of connections of family members that find their way into these particular political positions. But we're not talking about here that. And the reason I say that I don't think that's happening there among the people of God at the time is because Hanani is one who is pointed out as being, he does seem to hit this level of respect in having this kind of character as being a person who's spiritually minded. And you notice what he says in verse 2 in terms of his qualifications. It is this, Hanani was a faithful man who feared God more than many. So when it comes to biblical standards for leadership within the church, we're not talking about people who have relational connections. They are brother-in-law or the brother of so-and-so or they're the niece of so-and-so or the nephew or whoever that not, has nothing to do with all those kinds of connections. What we're talking about is we're looking for people of character and people of spiritual vitality. That's what sets them apart from all the others. 
And the qualifications for church leaders are clearly set out in the, in the scriptures, in the New Testament. Um, and we'll look at some of those in just a moment. But it's interesting to notice that even in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, Moses, in his uh, being exhorted to find some people who could provide leadership, Exodus 18, he was told to look for men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. Those are good three qualities, aren't they? To look for and people who would be considered spiritual leaders. But what does Paul say as he writes to Timothy? He's got a young church there, a church in Ephesus, and he's saying, okay, this is what you need to look for when you're considering appointing an elder of a particular church. He says, first of all, they must be people who exemplify godly character. Listen to some of the descriptions he has. 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're to be above reproach. That is, any significant flaw in their character just doesn't stick. It just does not something that, that is something that's going to be, stand out and be very obvious to everyone. They're respectable uh, gentlemen. They are self-controlled, temperate, gentle. They are people who are peace-loving. They're not greedy individuals who are driven by uh, gaining money for everything. It's all about money. No, that's not what really drives them. They're not violent people who all of a sudden flare off in their temper, and next thing you know, we're having a fist fight. They are people of good reputation among people who are not even followers of Christ because they live their life consistently enough to be known as Christ followers outside of the context even of the church. So exemplifying godly character, also they are people who are able to teach the Bible. They know enough about the Bible to be able to impart that and explain it to other people. In addition, they are people who manage and lead their household well. They don't just talk about spiritual principles uh, and seek to somehow shepherd a larger group of people, but they're shepherding their own uh, flock, as it were, their own family. And so they describe it as a husband of one wife, which I understand to mean a one-woman man. That is, their devotion is to the one woman that they're married to. They're not a person who is involved in any kind of immorality and pornography and things like that. They are hospitable. They open their home. They're okay to uh, entertain people there. In addition, they're also an established believer, not some person who's just recently come to faith, a new convert. Now, these are the standards that God has set in place, and they're not optional. They're mandatory. And when these standards are ignored, and I've been in some churches where, unfortunately, uh, they just selected people who seemed to, to be successful in business or people who had family connections to somebody who gave the property to the church when it first was started, you know, generation after generation ago, and they claim, oh, I'm related to so-and-so. And so that person is given positions of leadership, not necessarily a spiritually-minded person. It's a real disaster. It's awful for the church because the church becomes anemic under the care of those kinds of people. But as church members, we are called here to submit to God's prescribed pattern of church leadership. And I'm thankful that within our church, that is something we seek to follow. We appoint men who we trust are fearing God, whose character is in keeping with the doctrine in which they profess. Now you say, it's not easy to yield and submit to those who are over us. That is something that is not something I find pleasant to do, whether it's yielding to the laws of our land or yielding myself to spiritual leadership over me. Would you turn with me just to, for a second here to First Timothy chapter, for, sorry, First Peter, First Peter chapter two, page fourteen forty. 
I think Peter bristled occasionally against the idea of him subjecting himself to authority and particularly found himself writing to people later on as a more mature follower of Christ. And he's writing to them because there are some Christians who are beginning to suffer in doing the right thing. They're actually being persecuted for being honest. They're being persecuted for uh, to not fight against, uh, the, um, to not respond violently against people who may treat them wrongly. And Peter's writing to these individuals and he's writing them, reminding them, listen, you may be treated poorly by this world and they may make fun of you and mock you and look at you like you're an idiot and a fool. He says, don't lose sight of who you are in Christ. He reminds them. He says, verse 5, you're living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Can you imagine being told you're a priest? That's what every believer is. It's a priest, one who's welcomed to come right into the throne of God, bring their own sacrifice, their, their sacrifice of praise, their, their gift of themselves. And he says, you are, verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Remember who, belong, who you belong to. God bought you and you belong to him. And that enables you then to have the grace to say, I'm not going to respond to these people the way I feel like responding. I'm going to submit myself to them. And that's where he talks about the power of the gospel to help us not just respond out of just our own uh, inclinations of our hearts, but out of the sense of overflow of joy and amazement at the grace and love God has shown us in the gospel to elevate us to that wonderful position in Christ. Notice he says there, verse 9, we are privileged of proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what Peggy was saying. That's what we all have the privilege of doing every day. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now watch this. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. And by the way, that means fleshly desires. The desire to do your own thing, desire to run your own life, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles or non-believers, so, so that in this thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, Glorify God on the day of visitation. And then notice the next application. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This was in the day and time, Peter's writing, when Nero was killing off Christians. It's not an easy application here. But what he's saying is, he says, whether to a king as one in authority or to the governors as sent by him, boy, that would have hurt because they all know the local Roman governors, which they all, I think, had very much of a distaste for. And he says, uh, to praise those who do right, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. I don't have time to expand this much further, but the point here is, how do we have that kind of response? It's because the Holy Spirit is reminding us that because of the grace shown to us as rebels who have been saved, therefore out of a sense of joy and gratitude, I submit myself by the Spirit's empowerment to be a person who submits to those around me and to those that God has placed over me because I am not the center of the world. It is Christ. And King Jesus has called me to live under his authority and to live my life in this way. It's in the local church, under the elders that God has placed over me, and under the legal authorities in the land in which I live. The people of God are a submitting people. That's just the reality of who we are. The second thing he says, though, in this text, going back now to Nehemiah, 
And I'm not going to take the time to read verses 5 to 69, <laughs> but that is the next section here. It's interesting to notice that the people of God also are a visible community, a visible community. Look at verse 5. Then my God put it on my heart to assemble the nobles and officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. And then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, in which I found the following record. Verse 6, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. And then he begins to number them, name them off, giving the numbers of them uh, as he continues to total up and determine exactly who is it that makes up the population of people now who inhabit this rebuilding city? Now, you notice that the people there are recorded under various headings. There are the officials and nobles in verse 5, and then you, you keep going down. You'll notice that there are priests, thir verse 39, Levites, 43. Uh, verse 44 are singers, they're gatekeepers, 45. Verse 46, temple servants. Uh, 57, uh, the sons of Solomon's servants, and on and on. So he somewhat has some categories of these people. But the point is here, he's recording them under these headings to serve in various capacities within the city of Jerusalem and to acknowledge that they have certain relationships with other people, certain family groups. Now, when it comes to all these names, and I'm not going to take the time to read all those, you could sit down and read them carefully if you would like to work on your pronunciation of Hebrew names. But one thing I think, several things we could say about the listing of all these names. First thing I want to say is, I think it's important, incredibly important to always stop and consider when it has a name you're having a hard time pronouncing that's in Hebrew. This long list of names is a reminder how important each person is to God. These people's names are listed here one at a time. And in a day and age in which we have pretty much reduced our identity down to numbers, and we're all trying to protect our information about who we are in terms of our numbers, of our Social Security number and everything else, it's just a reminder again, there are no little people in the eyes of God. It's a good reminder in today's world. There are names of many people in God's book who are overlooked, who are ignored as the nobodies of the, of the, uh, in the estimation of the world. But they are somebodies to God. And I think that's an important point we ought to draw away from, this long list of names, right? You don't just skip over and say, oh, next page. These are individuals, and their names are recorded. Now, more than that, I want to add this. as a second observation about the idea of these personal names. I want to stress the importance of being numbered among the people of God. Here's Nehemiah. He wants a list of the who's who that makes up the city of Jerusalem because he's planning on a future. He's looking forward. He's saying, well, we've got to know who's qualified now to serve in various positions within this population of people inhabiting the city. And there are certain positions you're not qualified for when it comes to being the priests in the temple. Look at verse 64, for example. He says there, these searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. <clears throat> the point here is that Nehemiah's day, these God's people were to be identified outwardly 
as those who belong to God and who belong to each other. And they were numbered. They were numbered. They were said, here, as, here I am. I'm calculating the number of them so we have a totality of who it is that's here among us that makes up the residents of this city. In the New Testament, I find it very significant that the, that the people of God, the Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ, they are counted and they are identified with the local church where they met regularly and of which they were a part. Now, I've listed in your notes there two interesting phrases here that theologians will oftentimes summarize important components of the idea of the church. The, word, the use of the word church in the New Testament has several different understandings. For example, there is the visible church and the invisible church. Now, this is just a way of distinguishing the way in which the term is used. When we talk about the invisible church, we're talking about describing every believer who has ever lived or who ever will live past, present, or future. And essentially, you could say that the invisible church is all of God's people down through the ages. It's the totality of all of them. That's why you can't see them all now, right? Because some of them died, some of them are present now, but they're all around the world. But that's who the people who make up heaven will be someday. Now, there is the visible church, and that is the term that is more often used in the, term of the understanding in the New Testament. This idea is the idea of those who profess faith in Christ, who assemble in a local vicinity. That is, they gather on a regular basis in a particular geographical area. They are known to be part of this gathering of, of believers. And the majority of these New Testament uses of the term church refer to a local, visible gathering of the people of God. And those churches apparently were able to identify who did and who did not belong to that particular assembly of professing believers. You say, well, come on, show me some kind of substantiation to that uh, significant statement. All right, let's look at Acts 2.47, for example. Acts 2.47. On the day of Pentecost, P Peter is preaching. You have a number of people gathered from all around the known world, the Roman Empire, I should say, and included in that number are various Jews, and, and they are now responding to Peter's message about Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the King from, from, sent from God. And he says, the Lord was adding to their number. The original number was 120 followers of Christ. Now he says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. He's talking about the church in Jerusalem. If you then move over to Acts 4, chapter 4, verse 4, just a few pages further, we read, Many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Someone is keeping track of those who are being added. That is not just uh, irrelevant details. That's significant. They're saying we are know who's the ones who have been added and those who have not been added. We can tell you who they are. And that is significant because if you keep reading through the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, you come to the letter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 5. Paul's concerned about those who were numbered among the church in Corinth. He's concerned about what was going on about one particular individual who was known to be a part of this particular assembly of believers, people professing to be believers. And he's urging this individual who has not repented of obvious known sin in his life, He's saying, listen, we've 
warn him, we've cautioned him, and we're to, he says you should not associate with an immoral person who claims to be a believer. If he's living in ongoing unrepentant sin, you're not to associate with him. He is not to be considered among this number of individuals who are known to be a part of the Corinthian church. You're to remove the wicked man from among yourselves. How can you remove someone among, from, from among you if he's not known to be one of you? So, the understanding is, then, therefore, I believe it's God's will that everyone who is a true believer of Jesus Christ, who has repented of his sins, whose trust in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, they are to bear witness to that profession. And the first step of their response to, to responding to the gospel is to, first of all, bear witness to that profession in water baptism. They say, where'd you get that? Well, read the New Testament, read the book of Acts, and you will see again and again people who hear the gospel, respond to the gospel in faith. Next thing you know, they're baptized. Acts 2.41, Acts 8.12, Acts 9.18, 16.33, and on and on it goes, 26.16. The first step of the Christian life is to repent and be baptized, Acts 2.38. That's a command. Now, does baptism save you? No. But baptism signifies that you have identified yourself with Jesus Christ and you are trusting and hoping only in Him and Him alone to make you right with God. And therefore, that is a reasonable and appropriate way of expressing your identification publicly in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus told the early church to do. Make disciples? How do you make disciples? Well, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we must identify ourselves with Christ, and that's what baptism does. And then having taken that step in professing faith in Christ publicly by means of the water, through the waters of baptism, then they are, a believer is to join themselves with the local expression of the body of Christ, the visible church. The New Testament assumes that everyone who is a member of an invisible church, that is, who truly is a believer, that that person will be numbered with a local visible body of Christ. Each disciple of Jesus Christ is to be counted in a local church and identified as one who is under the care and oversight of an under-shepherd, the elders that God has placed over them. Now, some of you may say, okay, well, wait a minute. Are you suggesting that if someone, just because of joining a local church, that that means that they are now guaranteed to be a member of the invisible church? I am not. John wrote... In 1 John chapter 2, of he wrote to people who left the church because they adopted and began to proclaim and adhere to false doctrine. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. And so there was a time in which they did make a profession, but they clearly indicated no longer an allegiance to that. And so it's possible that various ones will profess faith in Christ who do not have a personal relationship with God by faith. It was Dwight Moody who used to say that famous line, being born in a barn does not make you a horse, right? So therefore, joining a church doesn't make anybody a Christian. So I want to be very clear on that. But if you are a Christian, the normal expectation is that you would identify yourself with Christ, that you would verify your profession of faith involving itself in remaining in fellowship with, under the authority of elders who serve as the shepherds of a local church. In a sense, Jesus is a king of a kingdom that cannot be seen. 
And his kingship is made clear and manifest within the local assemblies of believers all around the world. In a sense, our church is sort of like an embassy representing in, a, in, a, in this particular place, in a, church, in a world that is clearly at odds against the kingdom of God, but we're located here and we're just saying this is an outpost, this is an embassy of a larger kingdom that belongs to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jonathan Lehman has written a book about membership in local churches I would commend to you, one of these little small little books from Nine Marks, and he writes in here about an experience in which he was in Europe for a while. And while he's there state, uh, living in Europe, he lost his passport. Not a very good thing to do. And so what do you do if you're an American citizen, some, uh, spending some time over in Europe, I think he was in Belgium at the time, and he can no longer identify himself in terms of his standing as a citizen in the United States. Well, he went to where? The embassy, the United States embassy in Belgium. And through producing various other documents, he verified again his identity and therefore was given and reissued a passport. Now, that, did that make him a citizen? No, he already had a citizenship. It just made it clear uh, that he could therefore authenticate that he does have this status as a citizen. And in a sense, that's what church membership does. Being a part of a local church is a way in which we affirm for the watching world that I am a citizen of this invisible kingdom of Jesus Christ. And as I continue to live out my life in the local church, which I've entered into that realm through profession of faith in Christ, and as I continue to live that out in the context of that local church, that is reaffirmed and affirmed and therefore made clear for all to see that I am a follower of Jesus Christ and numbered among those who are part of His kingdom. Does that make me a part of His kingdom? No. But that's the way in which I manifest it and make it clear to those around us. And so again, my challenge is to you, if you've been a person that's attended church for years and years and years and years, and you've never fully committed to the steps it takes in joining and actually affirming yourself to say, I, I want to take on the church covenant as something that I'm committed to doing, to doing, I urge you to make that known and take that step. We welcome those who would be interested in doing that at any time. One more point I want to make here is point number three. We skipped over a number of names there, but they are important. Uh, just like every person who's a member of our church here is important. Let me just say again from verses 70 to 72, there's one more interesting insight here regarding what's happening among the people within these walls that have been rebuilt. Verse 70, and some from among the heads of fathers' households gave to the work. A governor gave to the treasury a thousand gold drachmas, 50 basins, 530 priests' garments, and some of the heads of fathers' households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minus. And that which is the rest of the people, the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minus and 67 priests' garments. Now the priests and Levites and gatekeepers and singers and some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel lived in their cities. What I draw out from that text is just a simple principle and that is this. The people of God are a giving community. A giving community. It's a pattern throughout the scriptures. God's people support the work of God. Those who worship in the temple are those who give support to its ministry. 
That was the old covenant way, and in the new covenant way, those who take part and derive benefit from the worship of God's people in the local church, they support it through their generous support. And notice that not everyone is giving the same amount here. It's very clear that there are some people who are very well off, who have many resources, they're giving a very large substantial amount, and you add up all the rest of it, adds up to maybe what some people are giving in just a few of their big gifts. But the point is this, if you understand what's happening in this city, in chapter 5, we learned that there was a famine, there were difficulties, there were people who lost their land, there were people who were going through a lot of financial challenge. And some of them were well off, and some of them are seeing their assets dwindle extraordinarily. But it wasn't just the rich who gave to the temple treasury. They were all giving, and that's the key. All of the people gave, verse 72. And I would just suggest to you that is the pattern that God does encourage among his people. Because if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul, in directing the believers there in Corinth, before he gets there, he's encouraging them on how to handle their resources and their, uh, their various stewardship of the things God has entrusted to them. And he says, listen, set aside money in keeping with your income. That is, there's a percentage, there's, a, there's a, a, a portion of that in keeping with how much God has blessed you, then you give generously. If God's blessed you generously, then you give generously. And that kind of uh, a proper way of handling it is to say each one is to give proportionately to the work of God in the local church. And that's why our church does not sell things. Our church is not out trying to hawk things where we try to just sell things that have value and we're trying to make a profit to, in order to meet our budget. Uh, again, I have the story of uh, bringing my mechanic here one time. I dropped my car off years ago. I don't go to the same mechanic anymore. Uh, but he, I dropped my car off, and he drove me back here. He says, oh, I want to look around and see what your church is like. I said, sure, let's walk through. So we walked through, and he saw the, the room downstairs. I'll never forget it. He says, oh, wow, look at this big room. He says, this is where you do bingo? I said, no, we don't play bingo here. I said, he says, well, how do, you, how do you raise funds? How do you support all this big... I said, people just give. He looked at me, you could just see the gears going. Uh, being a mechanic, the gears. Uh, you could just hear the gears going, and you could just sense, that doesn't make sense. He said, give? They just give freely? I said, yes, because they love Christ, and because he's now changed their hearts, they want to give. He still couldn't figure that out. I, I didn't, wasn't able, ever able to explain it fully to him. But that's, in a sense, what we are saying as a church is that the gospel so affects our hearts that we now have a new treasure. The treasure is not our money, our treasure is Christ. And our treasure is the wonders of the kingdom of God is so wonderful to be a part of that, that we're saying, I want to see that kingdom expand. I want more people to enjoy what I'm enjoying. I want to see it flourish. And therefore, we believe God intends God's people to give as they are led by God. We don't dictate and tell people what they're to give, to underwrite the ministries of the visible local church. And as we do this, God is honored and his word can be ministered freely and without ulterior motives. Here's a helpful little phrase I want to give you. It's come from a book that I would like to commend your reading. Some of you may have never read this. It's a very small book, uh, literally only, uh, let's see, how many pages got here? Not, less than 100 pages, and each page is very small in the number of words on it. It's called Randy Alcorn's The Treasure Principle. Randy Alcorn's The Treasure Principle. He talks about the biblical understanding of being a steward and handling God's treasure that belongs really ultimately to him. And here's a great quote. He says this, among many 
key principles he has in the book. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, right? But to raise my standard of giving. What a kingdom mentality. What a different way of thinking. What a different way of believing and a different way of acting. Instead of seeing when I have more and more assets given to me by God in whatever way, is that I don't say of, think of that as that's going to raise my level of standard living and comfort level. No, it means that God is now, because I've already been blessed, I'm already learning to be content, I'm now in a position where I can give more and more and bless more and more people and bless the ministry of God's Word more and more. May God enable us to do these things in a keeping with the wonders of His gospel that we've received through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realize that today we've talked about some challenging components of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means that we need to lay down our rights and our desire to be people who determine our own life and who have our own will brought about in our world. And so, Lord, we thank you that one of the first things you call us to do when we come to Christ is to take up our cross and deny ourselves and to follow Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that the gospel will so um, overwhelm us with its riches and with all of the glories of what we find in Christ that we would be willing to take that step, Lord, all of us, and whatever that means. For many of us, Lord, that means learning to submit not only to the legal authorities but to the authorities here within this church. And Father, I also pray that uh, for many who have for years been resisting the idea of being numbered with your people within a local church, I pray that you would impress upon their hearts the glorious privilege it is to align themselves, to say that their allegiance to Christ is being clearly made known in, this, in their allegiance to the people of God here within this own local church. I pray, Lord, that you would help uh, take some who seem hesitant and have always balked at that. I pray, Lord, that they would begin to move in the direction of following the Spirit's lead and taking that step to confess Christ and also to bind themselves together with other believers and to make clear their love for Christ by loving others and practicing the one another's in this local church together. And Father, I pray also that you would uh, encourage in our own hearts a fresh view of the assets and the, and the material riches, Lord, you've entrusted to us. Thank you, Lord, for the many people who do give generously week after week. We don't have any strong-arm tactics here, Lord. We are trusting by faith for you to provide. We thank you that you do so. We pray that you continue to increase our joy in giving and therefore give glory to you. May people be astounded and amazed at how the gospel changes people's hearts, so much so that they give so generously to the kingdom and its advancement. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our final